0: So we can't make them fall asleep. All we can do is A, make sure we're not woven into their go to sleep pattern and, and then set, set them up for success. And then after that, it's, it's important that they then do the work. And some of these kids just take a long time to go to sleep.
1: Welcome to Tilt Parenting, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. I'm your host, Debbie Reber. My guest today is McCall Gordon, a certified pediatric sleep coach with a research-based specialization in sleep development, temperament, emotional regulation, and parenting psychology. Through her private practice, Little Live Wires, McCall focuses exclusively on working with children who are more sensitive, perceptive, persistent, and active. Sounds like our kids. McCall, who has a master's in applied psychology and a bachelor's in human biology, started studying sleep because her own children did not sleep very well, and she found that none of the advice offered by parenting books worked for her family. She was determined to find some answers, and she has. In this episode, McCall talks about the unique sensitivities Differently Wired children have that frequently result in sleep challenges, how she supports families struggling with sleep issues by helping them to introduce a sustainable night routine, and strategies for helping our kids establish better sleep habits. I also asked McCall to share her opinion on co-sleeping and melatonin, which I know so many of us have used with our kids, as well as how we can get back on track with a healthy nighttime routine, especially if we've done some of what I refer to as accidental parenting and established sleep routines that aren't going to work in the long run. I really tried to cover all the big questions, but I know that sleep is a big topic. So please let me know if there are more things you'd like me to cover, and perhaps I can do a follow-up episode with McCall. Thank you so much. And now here is my conversation with McCall. Hey, McCall, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you so much. I'm so excited to talk to you.
1: I'm looking forward to diving into this. And I'm really thankful that you reached out to me because the issue of sleep is, well, it's a quality of life issue. And it's something that comes up a lot, especially in this community for all parents, but really in this community. So before we kind of get into all of that, I would love if you could just take a few minutes and tell us a little bit more about yourself, the work that you do in the world. And I always love to know people's why, what got them into doing this.
0: Yeah, well, that's a good one, isn't it? Uh, Yeah, well, it's not because I nailed sleep with my kids. I'll tell you that, right? (laughs) (laughs) It's not because it was perfect for me. So I right now a certified uh, gentle sleep coach. I primarily work with younger kids, but it really the stuff that I talk about, especially with when I start talking at three and four year olds really can extend up. It becomes all a similar um, mindset. So I got into this because I had two very intense young children, very intense, very sensitive And the sleep advice that was out there just didn't work. And I was suffering (laughs) because I I didn't know what else to do. And so at the time, now they're both young adults, right? So at the time, way back in the dark ages, apparently, there was only one school of thought about sleep, right? And for young children. And if if you couldn't do that, then you were really, you just had to suffer through it. And I was thinking, there's just got to be, there's got to be an answer here. So I've um, got my master's degree looking at sleep and sleep research and temperament and emotional regulation and sensory processing. And then I've been using that in my coaching. And it's amazing how many people are out there that are still in the same boat that I was in 20 some odd years ago.
1: Yeah, I mean, sleep was an issue in my world from very early on. And I I just wrote down seven to 11 months when, when my child was seven months old. That's when the sleep stopped. And I think it was around 11 or 12 months that we finally called someone and said, we need help. Our child is not sleeping at all. And of course, we didn't know how our child was wired at that time. So I'm wondering when little ones like babies have sleep issues, is that often a sign that they're neurodivergent in some way? Like what's the through line there?
0: I love this question so much because um, I, I'm willing to bet even folks uh, out in your audience that have, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten, 10 and up, they, they knew early on. Oh, and they probably have had problems with sleep all along. Sleep problems don't technically just pop out when a kid is six, unless there's some kind of physiological condition that's, that's affecting sleep. I would say that most folks know extremely early that something is up with their child in terms of sleep. These are the markers that I hear. And every time I hear one of them, I know who we're talking about here. Very early alertness from birth. So sometimes the the baby, even from birth, is just a little more awake. They're not a sleepy newborn. They may have sleep problems days after birth, which is kind of unusual, right? They don't just fall asleep. They're just, they seem already sort of wakeful. They often are bouncers versus rockers. So a lot of these parents will say they need to be bounced on the ball or they need bouncing and white noise and shushing and like, and a perfectly dark room. And like, it's a full court press just to get a new little baby to sleep. And then, and then the other part is that sleep problems are often a notch or two or five above what we would normally think of as, or maybe your friends think of as problematic sleep, right? So I work with parents who call me and they say, my baby is waking every hour. And we're co-sleeping, for example. So you'd think of a baby would sleep well right next to the parent. This baby's waking up constantly. So it's when those sleep problems are another notch above, we know that just the normal, everyday, whatever your friend is doing uh, is not going to work as well or the same way for your kid. It just doesn't at all.
1: So I want to spend most of this conversation talking about kids who are a little older, but I do want to stay in this zone for just another moment, because I'm sure there are listeners who, you know, even if it's not their first child, who is quite young, they may have another a second or third child who is a baby and that they're dealing with this. And as you were talking, you know, one of the things I say is that we parents are kind of like the wingsuit flyers of parenting, right? Everything is more intense, a little more extreme. And that, as you just said, is the case with the sleep challenges too. So when you work with families who have these young ones, babies who, and, you know, Ash woke up hourly. So that was bringing back some memories. When you're working with families like that, I'd love to know what you do that's different than ferberizing or, you know, what we used to do and how that supports them as they grow. Because I imagine, I don't know if it's early intervention, but working on those things from a young age can support them as they grow.
0: Well, I mean, I think the 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 really cool thing is that I think the strategies and the sort of paradigm I work in works great for little ones, but it's the same paradigm that we can use to impact um, older children too. So there's certain little places where, where the parenting, the advice in books or whatever falls, falls short for these kids. And what, regardless of how old the child is. So there's going to be a few things we'll talk about that really apply absolutely across the board, I think. Now, the other thing to keep in mind, too, is I know we're talking about a broad range of differently wired kids. So some of what I say will be not as applicable for one set of differently wired kids than or neurodivergent kids than another. But we'll, you know, we can't. We'll have to just kind of go broad broad strokes. So um what's different about or the at least the tweaks or the adjustments that I find I have to make for these kids regardless of the age is one staying ahead of their second wind. So uh, these little guys uh or and bigger guys probably have terrible sleepy signals. They just don't realize they're tired. So they don't yawn, they don't rub their eyes and then a parent misses that moment and then they're into it they're into the booster rockets and sleep is just 10 times harder. So that can be an, an easy thing for parents to do. A lot of these parents will say, Well, my baby just never looks sleepy. My kid just never, or they drop their nap at two years old. Very common, very, very common. So making sure that you insist or that you know what that when your child is needing a break. That's number one. Number two is these guys need a lot of transition time, a lot. And so you have to really give them wind down time before you even start. Um, And we can talk more about what that looks like by different ages. And then the other, the most important piece is that the idea of leaving the room and that your child, these little guys will somehow magically learn to self-soothe is, I mean, most parents will say, well, that was a total fail, total fail, drowsy, but awake. You know, you're supposed to lay your baby down, drowsy, but awake. I've never seen that work. Never, not once. So the approach that I use is just really gradual. And that, uh, where you, where you give a lot of support at first that you then gradually back off Depending on what you feel like your kid can do, um, it's kind of like how we teach them riding a bike or anything else. You you give them a lot of support at first, and then you just back that support off. And that one piece right there sometimes is the secret for a lot of parents, where you can you know you can start out if you're lying fully having to lie down with your child to get them to go to sleep. And we'll again we can talk about the nuts and bolts of this, but you can start sitting up in the bed and then after a day sit on the floor and then after a couple of days move a like six inches from there. And then, you know, you can break this down into very small pieces so that your child is just gradually getting used to whatever it is you're hoping to work towards. And I think that's the, that's the key. You know, the only other thing I would say is also setting everybody up for success. And that means understanding your child's sensory processing sensitivities, understanding what wakes them up versus what calms them down. And then building all of that into a bedtime routine or a pre-routine routine. So they, so they're not running full bore. And then you're asking them to just stop and go to sleep.
1: The pre-routine routine. routine. You could even have a pre-routine, pre-routine, pre-routine for the routine. Yeah. You talked about staying ahead of their second wind and those signals. Can you just say a little bit more about what those signals are? And is that part of the neurodivergence piece, whether they're dysregulated or they're just experiencing sensory information differently?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, if we think about what it takes to go to sleep that, you know, if we really, I mean, all of us we just go to sleep. We don't really think that there are steps you have to follow. And if you've ever had insomnia, you realize where you where those steps fail for you, right? Um so one step is knowing that you're tired. And again, I think that not only requires a certain internal awareness. Um And it it also requires some attention. And it also requires potentially a strength of signal. So we do know, for instance, that kids with autism have um, a less powerful melatonin release. So sort of biochemically, they're a little bit, you know, at a disadvantage because they're not getting this super strong signal from their body that they're tired. Other kids are so busy. They're so busy and so engaged and they're going so strong. They just don't want They don't want to disengage. So that first signal of like, I'm tired doesn't happen. And if parents are waiting for that, they're waiting too long. And then what I say is that if a kid goes past what they actually can do in terms of time awake, their body sort of releases a chemical that's like giving them a little red bull, right? And then they're, then they're powering up and then all sleep, you know. We know what it feels like to try to go to sleep after you've had too much coffee. You, you can't, even though you're tired. So just understanding that kids um, up to a certain age, you know, eh, maybe, I don't know. I don't know what the age would be. I want to say like fourth, fifth, sixth grade. Kids really do need an early bedtime because that takes advantage of this melatonin release. So if parents are saying, well, look, I we try to get her in bed by eight, but it never is." you know, it doesn't happen. She doesn't go to sleep till 10. I always back up that bedtime routine actually earlier, not later, because it's possible you've missed, you've missed her little lull. For littler ones, you just kind of have to know what their targets are. And there's lots of information out there about different targets. And you just have to find out which one works for your, for your child and then kind of watch the clock. I'm not usually a clock watcher, but
1: We'll be right back after this quick break. This year, I've been working on becoming more attuned to my body. And so I'm starting to really recognize how periodic spikes in anxiety or disruptions to my routines can seriously throw my whole system off. And as I've been traveling a ton this past month, which is both disruptive and somewhat stressful, I'm especially glad that I have the extra support of Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement from Ritual with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Symbiotic Plus provides fuel to the cells that make up the gut lining to support a healthy gut barrier. And it comes in this very cool minty delayed release capsule, which was specifically designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract for delivery to the colon. The bonus is that the capsules don't need to be refrigerated, so I can easily bring them with me in my carry-on. On a personal level, I love that Ritual is committed to sustainability. They're a female-founded B Corp, meaning they are holding themselves accountable long-term to not only think about their company's financial health, but also the health of people and our planet. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com tilt. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash tilt for 25% off. So in our house these days, Darren and I have been working together to uplevel our nutrition and healthy lifestyle habits. Maybe it's our age, our changing bodies, my shifting hormones, whatever the reason, I'm here for it. And that's why I'm loving Green Chef, a meal company that makes eating well easy with plans to fit every lifestyle. Green Chef offers gut-friendly recipes each week and is committed to providing a holistic approach to nutrition by offering meals that contribute to the overall well-being of your entire body. Darren and I are particularly big fans of their nutrient-dense science-backed gut and brain health recipes developed in partnership with registered dietitians that improve digestion, reduce bloat, and also boost energy and immunity. This week's favorites turkey, black bean, and sweet potato chili, and the Baja chicken bowls with mango salsa. I mean, don't those sound delicious? But if that's not your thing, you can choose from a variety of customized meals to suit your lifestyles with preferences like keto, vegan, vegetarian, fast and fit, Mediterranean, gluten-free, and protein-packed. Whatever you choose, you'll get farm-fresh ingredients, organic whole fruits and veggies, and premium proteins, along with chef-crafted, nutritionist-approved recipes delivered straight to your door. Go to greenchef.com 60TILT and use code 60TILT to get 60% off plus 20% off your next two months. That's 60% off plus 20% off your next two months when you use the code 60TILT at greenchef.com 60TILT. Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. You know, you mentioned being overtired and it, it, there is such a thing as a cycle, right, that we can get into where there's a sleep deficit, and it just kind of makes it harder. You know, I think there's that idea that, well, they got hardly any sleep last night. So therefore, they're going to sleep even better tonight, or but that's not always the case.
0: Doesn't always happen. Yeah. And another common problem with kiddos is that they're waking up at four or five in the morning, kind of ready for the day. And then parents think, okay, if I put them to bed later, that'll push that wake up. And it actually works exactly the opposite. So overtired makes them kind of wake up really early. So you actually should try to get them in bed earlier the next night and get and break that over. I call it the overtired wired cycle because they really are overtired. Sounds like they're falling down sleepy and it actually isn't that way. It's actually that they're sort of buzzing, right? And, and then it's really hard.
1: Yeah. Punchy. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, we have a lot of experience with that in this house. So you talked about that some of these kids, including autistic kids, and and I'm sure also for some kids with ADHD, that there is actually a deficit in their body's natural ability to produce melatonin. And then also, you know, the signals that they're not recognizing those signals. I'm just wondering, are there any other aspects or commonalities among differently wired kids that can be the root of sleep issues?
0: Yeah, a lot of some of them really have um, a difficulty quieting their brain down. So we talk about two e-kids or, you know, just kids with ADHD for sure. I just have a lot going on. I, I always, I, I never love the ADHD term or the cons, you know, the, how they've reconfigured it now. Cause I always say, is it attention deficit or thought surplus, right? Cause some of these kids are just thinking, so they've got so much going on. So we really need to, um, c- help them get into their body, calm their brain down, slow their brain down, um, and then do our best to not feed their active brain. And that just basically means for some kids, for example, I say, look, you know, I had one, one client at one time with, um, a really bright four-year-old, very active, very bright. And, um, I asked, she was taking like three hours to fall asleep at night. Um, and I said, well, what are you doing at bedtime? And they said, well, every bedtime we lie down with her and then we make up a story about the day. And I'm like, and, and how does that go? Does that help her calm down? And they're like, oh, no, not at all. And I'm like, well, maybe we need to stop doing that because it was like catnip for her head to keep her awake. So then we say, okay, for a verbal kid, we're going to use nonverbal verbal activities for a child who has auditory sensitivities we may do something else right we want to do the thing that helps that facilitates them slowing everything down and and getting into the sleep zone and this is when sen- an understanding of sensory processing and a lot of that occupational therapy world is gold for these kids cuz truthfully sensory processing sensitivity underlies the, and research has shown this actually pretty conclusively that sensory processing sensitivity underlies the vast majority of issues with sleep. So sensory processing, we know is just the way, and, it, and I would say sensory processing is even at the heart of being how you're wired, right? It's your satellite dish for how you take in information and then how you respond to that information. So kiddos who are more sensitive, have a much thinner barrier, I say, to the outside world. It takes much less to throw them off. And sleep is sort of a sensory experience, right? You need to, again, we said, you need to understand that your body is tired. You need to be ready to go to sleep. And then you have to have an environment that's not annoying you, right? (laughs) So, um, you know, the sheets are just right. The temperature's just right. I mean, I, I never realized how sensitive I was as a sleeper until I started doing this work and you know how I have to have everything just right. Otherwise I can't fall asleep and kids are the same way. So figuring out, um, what their sensitivities are, what things they, you know, don't like, what things help them calm down is super helpful. Little things. Here's an interesting one. Baths don't always calm kiddos down. Some it's, it's a sensory experience that wakes them up. So for those, you know, parents know, you just have to ask them, does a bath calm them down or wake them up? And if it wakes them up, don't do a bath at bedtime for visual kids. Don't read a book, do an audit, an audio. There's lots of great audio um, recorded sleep visualizations that are great for kids. They're sort of like self hypnosis, but it's really just like a story that helps them calm down. Another great trick is what they call heavy work. And it's an, it's, it's a weird name, but it's from occupational therapy. Um, there's some great resources online that you just t- type in heavy work for bedtime. And it's basically games you can play with kids that help their big muscles and joints kind of relax. So it's things like, and it'll it's again, it's, not intuitive at all. Pushing a laundry basket of books around, uh, crashing into pillows, doing push ups on the wall, jumping on a trampoline, which you'd think would be the opposite of what you'd want to do for bedtime. But for these kids, that pressure on their joints and big muscles kind of helps the whole system power down a little bit. So sometimes doing that, again, that's good pre routine routine, right? Because it sounds like a game. But it's actually in the service of getting them ready to kind of, okay, I'm ready to get in bed and be calm.
1: Yeah, I, I'm remembering that when Ash was maybe four or five, six, that Asher and my husband, Darren would wrestle every night, you know, it was kind of their own WWE kind of style wrestling. And that was just part of the routine. It was, a, And so now I have a better understanding of why that worked. So is this a lot of experimenting? It sounds like because there are so many different things that we could try. And I also imagine these things change over time, like something that might work for this age child in two years may stop working. So how do we kind of navigate figuring out what might work for our child?
0: Well, that's a a good question, though, because also, how do you know if it's not working, right? Like there's a a lot with these kids, they can be real curveballs. And what happens to us as parents is often we can be really shell-shocked, like nothing works, I don't know what I'm doing, I'm just throwing possible solutions at everything. And that by itself makes things for these kids even more a little more chaotic, right? So we say, look, be very methodical, very methodical about what you try really give it three, four, five days. Don't try it two nights and go, well, that didn't work. Because these little guys have a very wide turn radius and they're not going to respond immediately. In fact, the first time you do something new, it's probably going to be a rodeo. I just say, just expect it not to work the first time. But you've, you've got to stick with whatever you're trying at least for, I would say, three or more Times to really see if it's going to kick in. These little guys love patterns, but they need to be able to detect the pattern and they need to be able to detect that it's not going to change in two nights. So, having a really clear, almost rigid plan for bedtime and then sticking with that for se- really several nights can be really key for these little guys. I even say for some of them, rehearse the changes during the day. If for example, let's go back to like okay, I've been lying with them and tonight I'm going to sit up or tonight I'm going to sit on the floor with them. Talk to them about it ahead of time and then say, "Let's go practice. Let's go see what that'll feel like." And and give them a dry run so that you're not springing things on them at bedtime when everybody's tired. Really front load whatever it is you choose to do. We say write it into a plan with kids. use You can use visual cues like pictures or whatever's going to work for them. Uh, review it ahead of time, check things off as you go, and then review it again the next day. So choosing what works, um, that is in terms of the routine stuff, I would just st- say to under- first understand if you can understand your ch- your own child's s- processing Strengths and depth, and not deficits, but like sensitivities. Oh, he really hates loud noises, or or loud noise, like white noise, really calms them down. Use the white noise, <laughs> use that, and avoid other things. Um, sensory processing is hard sometimes, so I also say if if you feel like your child has sensitivities it may be worth just getting an assessment. And this is not for a diagnosis. We're not looking for sensory processing disorder. It's merely an assessment so that you can find out, for example, my kid is sensory seeking and has um, sensitivities to uh, tactile sensitivities. Those two things will tell you a lot. And the OTs that work with or assess kids will give you information about how to you know, maximize their strengths and work with their sensitivities, so that you're not swimming upstream at bedtime, doing the thing, doing the one thing that's making them stay awake or is
1: annoying them, right? Oh my goodness. Every time you talk, I come up with three new questions. Okay. So one of the things you mentioned, you know, maybe white noise or there are so many different things that we could do. And I have certainly thought this and I'm wondering if other listeners have too. I sometimes have worried that that by introducing a tool such as white noise am I creating a situation where that, you know, where my child will rely on that and will need it then? That is going to be the foundation for all of future sleep right and they will always need white noise or they can't sleep. Can you dispel that?
0: Yeah. Uh, uh, yes. Yes. I think it's the one message that parents get that is the least helpful. And really, I would say the most inaccurate. I mean, if we if we don't say for a parents of an infant, don't carry them or they will never learn to walk. You know, they will. Kids grow and change. At the same time, I still use white noise. I cannot. I have it on my phone. I, I use it in a hotel room. I don't know what I did without it. <laughs> So, um, I think the guideline for parents is, is this sustainable for you? I think getting sleep is way more important than avoiding, you know, what they call crutches, which I just don't like that term at all. We've, 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 um, made, made doing what works a negative. And I think that's where parents struggle. They're like, I'm doing what's working but I also kind of feel guilty about that or worried, like you said, especially with these kids doing what works is absolutely key. It lowers the pressure on everybody because your kid is sleeping. They're going to behave better. They're going to feel better and it's going to be easier on you. And and as parents with differently wired kids, we have got to um, conserve our mental and emotional energy. So if it's working and it's sustainable, white noise is totally sustainable. Lying with your kid for two hours, not sustainable. That's not sustainable. So that we want to move that along. But any of these little things that we're doing, roughhousing before bed works now. He may not need it in a couple of years, he may be able to do something else. But for right now, if it works, and uh, everybody's cool with it, yay, I say, have a party about that.
1: We'll be right back after this quick break. Hey, there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches. Six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered. The opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything, because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone. Our kids aren't broken, and we have totally got this. What about melatonin, which is something that so many, so many of us have used or use with our kids?
0: Yeah, it's hard. Um, I, I just, I always defer to pediatricians on that because it, you know, it is a, it, there's all kinds of upsides and downsides, but that's true for anything. You know, when I have a kiddo who's got silent reflux, a little baby's got silent reflux, um, there's some Doctors who say, no, 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 we we don't want to medicate because there's downsides. And it's like, yeah, but the other downside is the stress and the the distress that this family is experiencing. So your pediatrician can help give people the upsides and downsides. I do know it's routinely prescribed for kids with autism because of their natural melatonin deficit. But we have to also remember that melatonin only helps with sleep onset is not a sleep aid in general. It only helps that first moment of the night. Yeah. Talk to your pediatrician.
1: Okay. Thank you. And what about co-sleeping? You know, you mentioned earlier that lying next to your child is not sustainable for a couple of hours, but if a child is sleeping well and they are co-sleeping, which is what a lot of parents end up doing, what are your thoughts on that? I again it
0: as long as it as long as it's sustainable for you and you're sleeping well and the child is sleeping well. But you know it has to be really all three of those. Th- there's lots of times where people are co-sleeping, they're not sleeping well and or the child's not sleeping well and then I'm like it's not it's not super sustainable. Um, Really sensitive kids often have, I mean, they're really light sleepers. So even just the natural rolling over in bed, rustling of the sheets, people breathing is enough to keep them awake. Um, My son was certainly like this. And again, this was before white noise and before we understood anything. He was waking up every 45 minutes and we were co-sleeping and it it was, you know, not good. I think he would have he would have been better in his own space because I think we were waking each other up constantly. So there's nothing overtly bad about it um, or or problematic if everybody's sleeping well. Yeah, for sure.
1: So what about a family that has perhaps they they have some routines that aren't sustainable, but they're desperate. Right. And so they found themselves kind of going down a path that wasn't their intention, but there they are. How do they get back on track and push that reset button? What does that actually look like?
0: Oh boy. Sure. That's a really good question. Cause that totally happens. So again, it depends on the age of the child and hopefully if we're talking about a kiddo who's old enough to really understand and reason, again, the idea is you sit down with your child and you say, we're going to come up with a new plan and you front load every request, everything that they may push for and you decide, for example, okay, we're going to read for 15 minutes. We're never going to read for 20. We're not going to read for 21. We're going it's 15 minutes. 15 minutes. It's always 15 minutes and then ask them what they want in the routine and like build it with them. And then you're just, you know, again, the first couple of nights that you, that you change course on them, it's liable to be bumpy and it's okay that it's bumpy. If you know, you're asking your child to do something that's totally okay for them, then you have to just get on that horse and kind of ride it. But again, if the child is old enough, I think that, that you can really have them participate in it. And then in terms of another good point is in terms of like rewards and incentives, a lot of times these guys are not into future rewards. They can't hold it. It just doesn't motivate them. So that idea of like, if you do a good job, if you, if we check all these boxes, you get a blah, a sticker, or you get whatever doesn't, doesn't work. And parents often really feel up a Creek because then they're like, well, how do I motivate them? Really? All you can do is make a big deal the next day of everything that went right and ignore the stuff that didn't. So just make a really like a lot of good, solid praise about how well certain steps went. And, and then you're giving it that you're giving your attention to the stuff that, that went well, um, for sure.
1: And as kids get older, too, I imagine that they become more invested. They would be more intrinsically motivated because they want to not be sleepy all the time, right? Or you know, especially as they get to be adolescents and their sleep patterns change, waking up feeling not rested, maybe they'll be more open to trying different strategies. Do you see that in your work?
0: Yeah, sometimes I think. I mean, kids they they do grow in their capacity for sure, uh, you know. And then we kind of also it occurred to me like. You know, we could do a whole thing on just anxiety around bedtime. You know, how do you work with fears of the dark? And there's a lot to unpack in terms of, of what what makes sleep so hard for, for these kids. We'd have to talk a lot faster to fit, <laughs> to, to fit it all in. And then the only other thing I would talk about really quick as uh, just as a tangent are the physiological disruptors of sleep that parents should keep an eye out for. So these are important because there are things that look like a kiddo just doesn't want to sleep, but it's actually something physiological going on for me, for older kids, the two big, um, the two big ones, one, one we know about, and one may be a surprise. Uh, the first one is of course, sleep apnea. So any snoring in a child, uh, outside of cold, of course, um, outside of them being sick, should get checked out um, because that kiddos who have sleep apnea are going to get awakened quite a bit um, and they're going to look tired during the day, snoring, breathing through their mouth, sleeping in weird positions, waking kind of breathless, things like that. So that's something to get checked out for sure. The one that's really surprising that I've seen, it feels like an epidemic. I don't, I'm shocked. I'm seeing it so much is restless legs in kids. So it restless legs kind of is a misleading name because it really is painful legs. It's incredibly painful. So if your kiddo is taking a long time to go to sleep and they complain that their legs hurt or they're up for a long time in the middle of the night, like hours, and they cannot get back to sleep. Restless legs is caused by low blood levels of ferritin. And ferritin is the iron storage capacity in the blood. It's not hemoglobin. That can be fine, but ferritin can be in the basement. And if it is, this, it causes significant discomfort at bedtime and middle of the night. So that's a blood test, ew. But the good news is that the treatment is just some iron supplementation and pulmonologists want that level to be up above 50. So often pediatricians have a much lower threshold for low. If your kid has some of those symptoms, oh yeah, he's constantly kicking or, or we just thought it was growing pains, get a blood test. Get a blood test.
1: Wow. Okay. The sleep apnea I've definitely heard more about in recent years in kids and it's something we're not usually looking for, but this is the first that I've heard about restless leg syndrome. And I have had that and it is so uncomfortable.
0: Oh yeah. Really? Yeah. Yeah. That's what I've heard from adults. They're like, no, it's not restless.
1: It's like torturous. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh really? Wow. Yeah.
0: yeah they, um, with this pulmonologist basically said, now we really think that what we thought of was growing pains is actually restless legs.
1: Wow. That's fascinating. So For a parent listening to this, and I will wrap up after this question. But for a parent who's listening to this with a school aged child, I get this question all the time. Like I've tried everything, you know, meditation, baths, we went through a phase where we were just experimenting a ton. And I love that you said consistency, having that plan and really repeating it to get that evidence and really test it. But are there any go-to strategies that we haven't talked about that you would encourage parents to, to try to see if it can make a change?
0: Yeah, I I don't know that there are any magic ones that I haven't talked about oh.
1: That's what I was going for. Yeah, I know. Come on, the magic one.
0: I mean, there are, you know, again, I just think that if if you've got a good solid routine, the timing is good, you've got good transition, and you're still having problems at bedtime. It just depends on what the problem is, right? Oh, my kid's out of bed every two seconds, or, or um, oh, they just won't fall asleep, there's some of this stuff we can only do from our part of it. We can only do what we can do as parents. We cannot make a child go to sleep. So if we've covered every base, timing is good, routine is good, plan is good, she's in bed, she stays in bed, but she just sings to herself for an hour, I'm like as long as you don't have to be there for that, that that's okay. That's okay. So we can't make them fall asleep. All we can do is a, make sure we're not woven into their go-to-sleep pattern, and, and then set, set them up for success. And then after that, it's, it's important that they then do the work. And some of these kids just take a long time to go to sleep.
1: Okay, that's helpful. Wow. Okay, we have covered so much. And this has been fascinating. I have a feeling I'm going to get more questions after people listen to this, which I will collect and maybe we'll have a a part two of this. But for now, can you let listeners know where they can connect with you and learn more about your work?
0: Totally. Um, my website, because I work with little ones, I call them little live wires. So that's my website little com is my uh, coaching website with good information on there also instagram little live wires. so yeah and I'll have a book coming out sometime in the next couple of
1: years on this topic so yeah we need that book. That's fantastic. Well, keep us posted on that. Listeners, I will have links in the show notes pages so you can check out McCall's website and resources. And yeah, thank you so much. This has been fascinating, lots of food for thought, and I just appreciate everything you shared.
0: That was great. Thank you so much.
1: You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. If you want to dig deeper into this episode, check out the show notes page. Every episode has a dedicated show notes page on my website where you can get links to all the resources we discussed, read a transcript, and even easily go back and listen to key takeaways by using the chapters feature on the podcast player. To get to the show notes page for this episode, just go to tiltparenting.com slash podcast and select this show. If you love this podcast and want to help cover the cost of its production, please consider joining my Patreon campaign. For as little as $2 a month, you can help cover the cost of the hosting platform for this show, my wonderful new editor and producer, Andrea, and more. It's so easy to sign up. Just go to patreon.com slash to learn more or click on the Patreon link on any show notes page. If you're into social media, you can follow Tilt Parenting at Tilt Parenting on Instagram and Twitter, visit the Tilt Parenting page on Facebook or join my Facebook community called Tilt Together. Lastly, please help this podcast stay visible and easily found by subscribing and leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much. And that's all for this week. Stay safe, stay well, and take good care. And for more information, visit www.TiltParenting.com.
2: I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs)